We'll start a new Bible study tonight in the book of Deuteronomy. I'm excited about this. Uh, you know, over the last few years, I, I know at least two and a half years, we started in Genesis a couple of years ago, I think in 2020 maybe. Uh, we started in Genesis and we went chapter by chapter and then we did Exodus and then we did Leviticus and then we did the book of Numbers and we, we finished Numbers earlier this year and then took a break and did a Biblical Worldview series and now we're going to start on the fifth book of Moses or the fifth book of the law, the fifth book of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Torah all those different words and this is the book of Deuteronomy uh, it's a lot to cover We'll probably be in this book for another year or so. Um, but that's what I was telling her, someone I'm, I follow on Twitter, and she follows me. She's a women's Bible study leader. I was uh, telling her that, you know, from the time that we started our church, planted our church back in 2010, we've studied through books of the Bible. I know our very first Bible study we did back in 2010, we went through the book of Acts. I still have those notes from um, um, back then. So we did Bible study through the book of Acts. We've done, um, over the course of time, we studied through the book of uh, Ruth. I think we did Isaiah. Uh, we, we know been back and forth skipping Old Testament to New Testament. Uh, we studied through First and Second Timothy and Titus. Uh, we did a Bible study on uh, Revelation probably back in 2017-ish. We, we went through Revelation. Um, and there's a few other books I'm missing, but we, we've studied books of the Bible in Bible study. That's, that's the purpose of Bible study. Uh, it is to study the Bible together and to equip the saints, not just for knowledge's sake, but also equip us to uh, live in this world uh, that the Lord has uh, blessed us with to be able to give a defense of the gospel and a defense of the faith and also to learn about God through his word as I said Sunday the Bible is the word of God and so we're studying God's word and the more we study God's word the more we know about God and the more we know about God the better worshipers we are of God so um, I'm always excited when we get ready to go through a book so we'll go through this book together systematically I'm not going to have many slides and different things like that. We're just going to have a good old-fashioned Bible study. Take notes. If you'd like to take notes like I do, I would encourage that. Um, and we're going to go forth. So let's pray for the Lord. Lord, we thank you tonight for your grace, uh, for the grace of being able to study your word. We thank you, Lord, that uh, we get the privilege of opening up the very word of God. And Father, I pray tonight as we begin our introduction and study of the book of Deuteronomy that you fill me with your spirit to teach well, um, to do your word justice to the best of my ability, and send your spirit to illuminate uh, the text that we're going to look at tonight from the first chapter, hopefully. And Lord, just bless our time in your word. Uh, encourage us by your word. Transform us by your word. Uh, conform us to the image of Christ. 
uh, by the means of your word. Just bless our time together, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. So we're going to do some introductory matters first. Um, you know, the title of the book, the time it was written, context, so forth and so on before we go into um, the book. Now, if you, you have a good study Bible, you know, most study Bibles have an introduction to them. I have a John MacArthur study Bible, and it has a good introduction. Um, and some of the things I, I'm going to teach tonight are things that I've uh, done myself, but also I'll give attribution where it's needed as far as other sources that I've used. Um, but first of all, the name of the book is Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy, in essence, means second law. Because, you know, if you read through the book this past month, you'll see where uh, the commands were given again. You saw where the second law was given. Now, the book of Deuteronomy contains all of the laws that Israel had to follow concerning different things. You read through it, you saw that there were laws for all kinds of uh, matters that were addressed in this uh, book. So it means second law. And um, what Moses does in this book is he commands the king to make a copy of the law and so the book offers a restatement of the law for a new generation that's kind of the context if you remember in the book of uh, numbers I think it's chapters 13 14 and 15 or 14 15 and 16 when the spies went out to spy out the land and 10 spies came back with a bad report and two Joshua and Caleb came back with a good report and God had, in essence, cursed the older generation because they did not believe. And he told them that their carcasses would die out in the desert. Uh, so it was the new generation that were ages 20 and younger that would go into the promised land. So Deuteronomy picks up 40 years later, and they're still, you know, haven't made it in yet. So this generation now is the oldest are probably in their, you know, 60s, and then you have some that, of course, young because, you know, they have children and all those things. Uh, so this book is offering a restatement of the law for a new generation. And not necessarily a copy of what has gone uh, before. And it contains, in essence, a series of sermons from Moses. Uh, Deuteronomy is basically Moses' final address to Israel because, if you recall... Moses had disobeyed God when the people were thirsty in the desert and uh, Moses had got tired of contending with them and God told Moses to speak to the rock and you know water would come out but in anger Moses struck the rock and because he struck the rock he was he was stubborn and rebelled against the Lord the Lord told Moses that uh, he would be able to look over into the promised land and, and we're going to see that play out where God called him up to the mountain and uh, you know asked him to kind of look over the land but that he would not enter in because he had rebelled against God um, so that's, that's kind of a, a sad ending for that but uh, so this book is kind of like Moses' farewell to the people I think at this time he was about 120 years old uh, the end of the journey because I think he was 120 when he died so he spent his last 40 years or the last third of his life with God's people in the wilderness. The approximate date of this book is 
around 1400 BC. So we're looking at almost 25, I'm sorry, 3500 years ago. It was written around 1406 BC. And this is Chuck Swindoll. He says it was written around 1406 BC at the end of the 40 years of wandering. And so it was written in the what 15th century BC. And Israel was on the east side of the Jordan. They had not yet crossed over, as it's going to be chronicled in the book of Joshua. But they were camped on the east side of the Jordan River in the plains of Moab, I think, as the Bible described it. Uh, they were across the uh, river from the city of Jericho. You know, if you know about Joshua, you know, though, I mean, we've seen the child song, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. You know, we've seen that song in, in church. Uh, but they were on the banks of the Jordan River across from Jericho. Um, but before they could cross over, the Lord had to reiterate uh, through Moses his covenant with them. And so these the, the time period of this book is about uh, 70 days or so, uh, the time period of everything in this book. Because remember, this was at the end of the 40 year journey so Moses' sermons were given over a 40 day uh, period and I think chapter 1 verse 3 the first sermon was delivered on the first day of the 11th month and we'll get to these uh, get to the chapter in a second but I know that's in verse 3 of chapter 1 where the beginning of the first uh, sermon was given so this book comprises of farewell speeches from Moses, and it ends with the Song of Moses in, I think, uh, the 32nd chapter. Okay, so that's kind of a uh, introduction. Now, Deuteronomy is, is the narrative, uh, it has three main sections to it. Uh, the first section is the beginning of the book un until almost the end of chapter 4. And this is Moses' first sermon where he gives a recap. It's like a review of their wanderings. So uh, most theologians have uh, said the first four chapters, in essence, are looking back. They look back at their journey, how God brought them out of Egypt, and how they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, so that's kind of the first four chapters. So they're recapping, they're remembering the past. And uh, basically God's message to, th to them is to take heed, do not forget. And then the meat of the book is chapter, uh, the last part of chapter 4 until the end of chapter 26. And this is where the law is given. This is a, the, the legal exposition of the book this is what theologians call the looking up part so the first part is looking back the second section is looking up what are they looking up for they're looking up to God to what God expected of Israel the law of God are his expectations for his covenant people for all areas of life and we're going to see that so it is basically a rehearsal of God's law 
and it is commandments for the present as opposed to remembering the past. And first you have the Ten Commands. Uh, you have the Decalogue, which is the Ten Commandments, an explanation of that. And then you have the different ceremonial laws, you know, the uh, different things they have to do in worshiping of, of God in the tabernacle and out in the wilderness. And then you have the civil laws dealing with law and justice and and uh, then you had the social laws in dealing with each other. So you had the ceremonial laws. We had we had the first of all the Ten Commandments, the uh, exposition of that. And then you had the ceremonial laws. And then you had the civil laws. And then you had the social laws. That's what covers the meat of the book. And then the last section begins in chapter 27, down through the end of chapter 34. And this is the prophetic promises that God gives his people as they get ready to enter the land. God gives his prophetic promises to the people. Now, I'll say this as we, that's going to be a long way off. But those promises that God gave were for Israel only for covenant Israel they're not for us but they're principles to learn from them in fact all the laws that we see in here uh, Jesus fulfilled the law so we're not um, we're not Jewish we don't keep those laws so to speak but the principles of those laws are applied to our everyday life you know Christ set a higher standard for the law because there's some laws now you're like huh but it's a meaning to that for them, but not for us. So you can't take one part of the law and apply it to us and not other parts. And we'll look at that as we get into that. But I just want to put that in there, especially the blessing and cursing part of Deuteronomy 27 through 30. You know, um, those blessings and cursings were for covenant Israel. You know, y'all probably hear you'll be blessing the city, you'll be blessing the field. You know, so forth and so on. You know, Fred Hammond even did a song like that, you know, about call we're blessed. But those for Israel, those were not for us. But, you know, but nevertheless, this is God's covenant of promise of what God will do. So this is the looking ahead section. Looking ahead to what God's going to do for Israel. Um, the promises and also the, the blessings and the cursings. <clears throat> a curse is also something that will happen to them. And uh, the blessing is also. Then in the book, you have the death of Moses. I think they had 30 days of mourning uh, for him. Moses gave his, gave his final words to Israel in the last three chapters. So there's a, a basic overview of this book as far as the sections and everything. <laughs> So you have looking back, looking up, and looking ahead. And if you think about the Christian life, the Christian life can be the same way. We look back, we look at the works of God in our life and in life of others, and then we look ahead, or look up, rather look up to Him, and remember God, remember why He chose us, just like He's going to remind Israel of why He chose them. Remembering God. And then also we look ahead to what God has prepared for us. In uh, the promised land, 
that Israel is headed toward is a picture of the promised land that all believers have. Our promised land is heaven and it's going to be perfect. Although they reached the promised land, they didn't get to enjoy it because they still rebelled against God. And we'll see that when we get to the book of Joshua, which we'll do after this. So, God's main emphasis in this book is Israel's obedience to the law. And the law was not meant to be a burden, but a response to the privilege of knowing God's will. It's a response to the privilege of knowing God and his will. So obeying God should never be a burden. It's not a burden. We make it burdensome. I think 1 John 5 tells us the commands of God are not burdensome. They're not meant to be. If we think they're burdensome, that means that we're looking at them the wrong way through the wrong lens. If we look at the commands of God as uh, something that, you know, that's why man rebels against God. That's why man is sinful. Because man wants to be God himself. And people rebel against God because they, in essence, don't want to be told what to do, so to speak. It's rebelling against man's sinful and selfish nature. So that's why fallen man rebels against God. Because man doesn't want to respond to God in obedience. Man wants to rebel against God in disobedience. And that's why it only takes a changed heart to obey God and obedience to the law is also a grateful response for those who are, who are saved those of us who say we gladly obey God we gladly obey his commands we don't do it with clenched fists and you know gritted teeth no we lovingly obey God so that's, those are just a few of the theological themes. So um, with that being said, we're going to go ahead and go into the first chapter. And I'm just going to read a portion of it first. I'm going to read the uh, verses 1 through 8. And this is dealing with the command to enter into Canaan. So, this is the word of the Lord, and it reads as follows. It says, These are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel on this side of the Jordan, in the wilderness, in the plain opposite Suf, between Param, Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It is 11 days journey from Horb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea, Kadesh Barnea rather. Now it came to pass in the 40th year, in the 11th month on the first day of the month, that Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him as commandments to them. After he had killed Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Hespen, 
and Og, king of Bashan, who dwelt at Ashtaroth in Edri. On this side of the Jordan, in the land of Moab, so this kind of shows you where they were, as I said, they're on the east side of the Jordan in the valley of Moab. Moses began to explain this law. So this is the beginning of Moses' first discourse and basically first sermon. The Lord your God spoke to us in Horeb, saying, You have dwelt long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the mountains of the Amorites, to all the neighboring places in the plain, in the mountains and in the lowland, in the south and on the seacoast, to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, which is in modern day Iraq and Iran in that part of the world. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them and their descendants after them. So that's the introduction to this first section. So what is Moses doing here? He's, uh, the, the Bible is giving, the Lord has given us a geographical setting for the final message and this is like the final staging area before entering uh, the promised land and the shameful part is in verse 2 let's look at verse 2 again it is 11 days journey from Horb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea now it came to pass in the 40th year a shameful delay of 40 years for an 11 day journey think about that you know they say the shortest distance between two points is a straight line well because of Israel rebellion they, they didn't take a straight line <laughs> they circled around a mountain for years and years and years and they wandered in the desert as God's punishment for those who rebelled against him in the book of Numbers so they wandered in the wilderness until all, all the older generation died that's in the book of Numbers uh, we're going to look at that uh, lest we forget in fact turn back to that right quick our, our memories uh, sometimes fade I think it's the 13th or the 14th chapter let's see and this is real-time Bible study. <laughs> Let's see. I think it's, here it is. It's chapter 14. Look at verse 26. So this is after uh, Israel refused to enter Canaan because those tribes rebelled. So you look at verse 26. This is Numbers 14. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil generation who complain against me? I have heard the complaints of what the children of Israel make against me. Say to them, this is God telling Moses what to say. As I live, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. All right, here we go. Verse 29. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. 
all of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old on the border above as I was saying in the beginning this this generation that we're reading about in Deuteronomy is the younger generation the ones that are 20 well they were 20 and younger at the time of this now it's 40 years later okay so it says here except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I will make you dwell in but your little ones whom you said would be victims I will bring in and they shall know the land which you have despised but as for you your carcasses shall fall in the wilderness 40 years and bear the brunt of your infidelity they were unfaithful to God until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness so back to Deuteronomy so I just want to give context here you know we have to, you know like I said it's been a while since we started numbers we didn't go right into Deuteronomy but we just have to be reminded of the context of where we are in this book so it was an 11 day journey but it took 40 years because of the rebellion and that 40 years was a punishment it was a sentence against those who were unfaithful to God those who showed infidelity by uh, not believing and rebelling and complaining against God instead of being grateful and re remembering what God did and bringing them out of Egypt they instead complained they murmured they murmured because they uh, if you remember they murmured about um, wanting meat they weren't satisfied with the manna they murmured when they were thirsty and, and you know so they, they murmured so God said okay that's it you're going to die in the wilderness all your carcasses for 40 years so when we see this first right here Deuteronomy the delay of 40 years was Israel's fault it wasn't God's fault no one can accuse God of sin or of sinning it was Israel who sinned against God and a consequence of their rebellion was what the 40 years of wandering that was a consequence of their rebelling okay just like you, if you rebel against Google Maps navigation you can end up in the wrong part of town <laughs> you know I ain't gonna follow those directions I know where I'm going and then you know getting lost you know <laughs> they say rerouting rerouting <laughs> So that's the shameful delay of 40 years. So it came to pass in the 40th year, in the 11th month, uh, Moses spoke to the children of Israel. So it gives a specific calendar reference. Excuse me. So verse 4, this talks about the military accomplishments after Moses had killed Sihon who was the king of the Amorites who dwelt in Hesperon and Og king of Bashan who dwelt at uh, Asheroth in Edri so Moses beginning uh, of his reflecting uh, talked about his encouraging military accomplishments 
So that's the first thing that he uh, remembers is those victories. The Jews had defeated them, I think, back in the book of Numbers. Let me see. I think it's Numbers 20. Let me see. I think it's Numbers 21. Let's turn back. To, yeah, I think it's Numbers 21-ish. Let's see. I think it's Numbers 21. And this was after the death of Aaron. So, yep. So, Sihon was defeated beginning at verse 21. And why were they defeated? Because they would not let Israel go through the land. Israel had asked permission. So, it says here, Then Israel sent messages to Sihon, king of Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside to the fields of vineyards. We will not drink water from your wells. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. So, you know, they asked permission, basically. You have to remember now, Israel's journey went through different nations. They weren't just out there by them. They were not the only people groups on the earth, okay? They had to go through other nations. So they asked, but Sihon would not allow Israel, this is verse 23, to pass through his territory. So he gathered all his people together and went out against Israel in the wilderness, and he came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. And Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land. Okay? So Israel took those cities. You look at verse 33. King Og. They turned and went up by the way of Bashan. So Og, king of Bashan, went out against them. And he and all his people to battle at Edri. Then the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have delivered him into your hand with all his people and his land, and you shall... Do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Hespin. So they defeated him and his sons and all his people until there was no survivor left him, and they took possession of his land. So that's what Moses was referring to. So he was recounting that military defeat that God enabled them to have. So, you know, that was part of his reflection. And so now, verse 6. It says, verse 5, the side that they're on. Remember, they're on the east side of the Jordan. Now, the first thing I want you to note in verse 6, the first, well, in the King James at least, New King James, the first six words, the Lord our God spoke to us. This is the authority of divine revelation. Moses wasn't speaking of his own will to God's people. You know, when you read the prophets, you will hear, I, I like the, po the, the poetic King James language where it says, thus saith the Lord. I like that. That's very poetic, that 16th, 17th century English. When it says, thus saith the Lord, it just, it sounds very authoritative. You know, this is the Lord speaking. This is the word of the Lord. So when it says the Lord our God spoke to us, this is God speaking through his prophet Moses. Moses is his prophet. Remember, Moses is a picture of Christ. He's a type of Christ, rather, as the prophet of God's people. And also a mediator, because he mediated with God uh, when God wanted to you know, come down on Israel and Moses would uh, mediate just as he did 
in the uh, 14th chapter we looked at uh, when God cursed that older generation right before that Moses had pleaded to God not to destroy all of them not to take all of them out but here Moses is prophet and this is key because you know you have people now that call themselves prophets and prophetesses because they I guess they try to say they foretell things but none of their prophecies come true so they should be the one lost or they should be put to death but Moses here is speaking the word of the Lord how you know God spoke to him because we're reading it you know just like we talked about this past Sunday anyone who says to you this is what the Lord has said and if they're not opening their Bible and reading to you <laughs> what the Bible says the Lord didn't tell them that okay they're false teachers if they come to you saying brother I got a word from you I got a word for the Lord from you okay let me get my Bible okay book chapter verse context okay amen so Moses gives the authority of divine revelation this is key so this is the Lord our God speaking to us and what does God open up and say you have dwelt long enough at this mountain turn and take your journey and go to the mountains of the Amorites remember they had already taken Amorites land to all the neighboring places in the plain in the mountains and in the lowland in the south and on the seacoast to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon and as far as the great river the river Euphrates so this is a call for Israel to finish the journey no more delay you dwelt around this mountain long enough okay it's time to get up and get to the promised land get to the land of milk and honey Dave they dwelt here long enough it's time for them to move out and engage with the inhabitants of the promised land the Canaanites they're going to have to engage with them it's time to get up and do it they've already engaged with other nations leading up to this point and now God is preparing them to engage with these new people so they're called they have a divine mission to take possession of the promised land so in chapter verse 8 we see where God cast that vision to them I have set the land before you go in and possess the land why could they go in and possess the land because who said it for them God did it was their promise rather it was his promise who did God promise this to first Abraham okay this was the promise that he made with Abraham okay so God is fulfilling that promise I have set the land before you it's already there for you and again remember the promised land that they're going to is a picture of heaven for us what did Jesus say to his disciples and I think it's John 14 I am going to what prepare a place for you that where I am you may be there also this is a picture of that when God says what I have already set the land before you 
it points to what Christ said to his disciples, to us, that I am going to prepare a place for you. Heaven is already prepared for us. Uh, Christ is not up there getting it ready. You know, he's not putting the finishing touches on it. It is already prepared. So the same with the promised land. God had already set this land out for them. All they had to do was go in and possess it and divide the, the land up among the 12 tribes. That's all they had to do. So God had already prepared it for them. He set, he set them up for it. So he commanded them to take possession of it based on his covenant promise because what did he say again? And possess the land which the Lord swore. God made a promise. This is something that should be encouraging to us. God keeps covenant. He keeps his promises. He made this promise to Abraham hundreds of years before this. Centuries before he made this, the promise to Abraham and then he made, made it to Isaac and then he made it to Jacob. God keeps covenant. He is faithful. He, he swore it. So he, he's fulfilling the divine mission to take possession of the land. I swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give it to them and their descendants after them. So God is fulfilling this covenant promise. The Lord is good, isn't he? Now, the thing is, at this intersection, Moses can't do this by himself. You have millions of people out here in the desert. Moses can't possibly manage all these people by himself. It's impossible. Hey, we can't even manage ourselves sometimes, right? Or five or six people. Moses has to help lead these people. So what is he going to need? He's going to need leaders. His first speech in crossing crossing the Jordan and uh, possessing the land is uh, establishing a delegated leadership structure. When I was uh, listening and reading through this, I was thinking about, man, God is so masterful in, in how he, in, in his wisdom. You know, scripture calls him the only wise God. God is so wise. Remember, these are all instructions that God has given to Moses. So it says here, looking at verse 9, this next section, we read through 9 through 18. So it says here, it says, and, it, and I spoke to you at that time, saying, I alone am not able to bear you. There you go. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and here you are today as the stars of the heaven in multitude, just like God told Abraham his seed was going to be. May the Lord God of your fathers make you a thousand times more numerous than you are and bless you as he promised you. How can I alone bear your problems and your burdens and your complaints? You have to remember at this time Aaron had died. You know, Aaron had died. Uh, it was chronicled back in the book of Numbers, I think 24. Um, but Aaron had already died. And, and so Moses could not do this by himself. Now, what does he ask them to do? Choose wise, understanding, and knowledgeable women from among your tribes or men. 
When I say women, y'all y'all supposed to say, no, men. <laughs> and it's the reason why we'll talk about this. From among your tribes, and I will make them heads over you. And you answered me and said, the thing which you have told us to do is good. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and knowledgeable men, and made them heads over you, leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of fifties, leaders of ten, and officers for your tribes. Then I commanded your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cases between your brethren, and judge righteously between a man and his brother, or the stranger which is with him. Who is with him, rather? You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small as well as the great. You should not be afraid in any man's presence, for the judgment is God's. That case, the case is too hard for you. Bring to me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all things which you should do. So, first thing Moses does is calls attention to his unsustainable leadership burden. He cannot bear all these people by himself. And we know that. Okay? So, there was need for organizational structure and shared leadership. Leadership in isolation, I'll say this, leadership in isolation can be especially burdensome. Okay? Leading in isolation can be burdensome. I had a, a good pastor friend to tell me one time early on that pastors need other pastors uh, because being a pastor is a very lonely uh, profession because everyone doesn't have that burden of a pastor that's why you pray for your pastor and pray for other pastors but uh, a pastor being a pastor is a very uh, it's a very burdensome task and, and, and vocation and that's why pastors need other pastors. That's why as much as I can, I don't do it as frequently as I used to because of my job, but I make sure I meet with Bob at least once every couple of months. Just We encourage each other. You know, the other brothers, they all still meet, and when I'm able to get back to doing that, I will. But, uh, but I still talk with other pastors. I don't do anything in isolation uh, because that's not good. Pastors need other pastors. Uh, that's just the way ministry works. But also, in the sense of any type of leadership thing, leaders need other leaders. No one can lead alone. No one can lead alone. It's, it is especially burdensome to try to do that. So we see here God showing this pattern here to Moses that, um, you know, leading in isolation. You have some pastors who don't want to associate with anybody here in this area. They're very like standoffers. I know some guys that are like that that I've tried to befriend and, and whatnot, but they're very standoffers and friend probably know a couple of them I'm talking about. Um, but they're very like standoffers, kind of keep to themselves type thing, but that's not the way it should be. Any type of leadership position shouldn't be like that. So growth creates need for shared leadership. Moses said what? they Verse 10 the Lord your God has multiplied you. And here you are today as the stars of the heaven in multitude. So there was an infinitely, uh, it was, you know, more than Moses could number, number of people. 
So he was anticipating uh, this growth. May the Lord, God of your fathers, verse 11, make you a thousand times more numerous. Now, this is just a colloquialism. It's just a, it's, it's just an idiom saying a lot. <laughs> when he says a thousand times, he doesn't mean literally a thousand times, but may the God multiply you infinitely, infinitely rather. That's what he means by that. Okay, so that's what he's saying here. How can I alone bear your burdens and the burdens of your complaints? So what is Moses saying here? That the problems of people also contribute to the burden of isolated leadership. People are hard to lead. Why? Because we're all sinners. Because we're fallen. If you work in an organization, think about it, think about those of you who still work. Think about your organization. The type of people you work with. And think about the fact that your managers have to deal with them. Or your teachers, I mean your principals have to deal with the teachers. Or the if you take it up and up and higher and higher up, think about the plant manager that has to deal with the managers the supervisors under, under under him school system the superintendent got to deal with the principals and the principals got to deal with the teachers and the teachers got to deal with the students so it, it it trickles down so people problems can't contribute to the burden of isolated leadership when I need counsel on how to deal with different church matters I know who I can call I used to call Bob first. Sometimes I'll call Phil uh, second if he's available. And when Ryan was at Redeemer, I would call Ryan. But because I can't do it in isolation. So with this as a pretext, Moses gives them a command in verse 13, choosing qualified leaders. God places a premium on who should lead his people. They should be qualified. Not just anybody. That structure has to be put in place by qualified people. Just like the house that you live in or the apartment or whatever has to be built with bricks and wood that is in essence qualified. That's able to withstand the load of the roof. And the foundation has to be able to withstand the load of the structure that's built on it. You have to have that, that firm foundation. So those who are leaders in God's kingdom have to be qualified. Now, it doesn't mean they're going to be perfect, but there are qualifications. So there's a process that God uh, puts in place just as a principle. So we see here, he said, choose what kind of men? Wise, having wisdom, biblical wisdom. Not uh, temperamental, but wise. Showing wisdom, showing discretion. Wise can include being apt to to listen 
a uh, leader can't be a know-it-all because that's not wise. So the wisdom that we're talking about is wisdom that comes from God. And then it said, men of what? Understanding. Okay, understanding is basically, well, they have to be able to judge because we're going to see that. They have to be able to judge matters. So they have to have understanding, understanding of God's law, understanding of God's standards. And knowledgeable means, of course, um, I think having, ex not being a novice. You know, and those, one of the qualifications of an elder is, is not being a novice, like a new convert, so to speak, because a new convert is not necessarily knowledgeable. Okay? And so he gives us qualifications. And he says, I will make them heads over you. So who whose responsibility is to choose the people? The, I mean, choose these leaders, the people. Moses can't choose all the leaders from all these people. So he tells the, the men, the heads of the of the families to choose leaders. Choose wise men. Choose wise men. Now, why men? Maybe because this was God's order for Israel. And it's God's order through most of Scripture. You know, a lot of people, especially uh, feminists and those who have a secular worldview, they call the Bible what they call patriarchal, uh, male, rude. But that's not necessarily an evil thing now some people have taken patriarchal uh, patriarchy too far so to speak but God uh, has set order in his word and for leaders of his people they are uh, to be men Paul says this in uh, 1 Timothy 3 in Titus 1 And just let's look at those verses right quick just to just to see here. Let's look at uh first Timothy. Let's look at Titus one first and then first Timothy three. And these are for elders. Elders are basically pastors, overseers, same same office, uh bishops. Well, let's look at 1 Timothy first, since it comes before Titus. 1 Timothy 3. And I'm in 2 Timothy 3, no wonder. Okay, 1 Timothy 3. Qualification for overseers. And again, bishop, elder, same same office is not different. This is a faithful saying. If a, what does he say? What's that third word? If a what? Man desires the position of a bishop or elder or overseer, he desires a good work. He must be blameless, husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, and of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine. That means not a drunkard. Not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous one who rules his own house well. Verse 6, not a novice. 
Okay, that means he has to be knowledgeable. Okay, so they won't be puffed up with pride. He must have a good testimony among those outside, having a good reputation. So these are God's qualifications for a pastor. A female pastor is not a pastor. That don't mean that women can't serve in the church. No, that don't mean that. They just can't be pastors. That's biblical. In Israel, during the time of uh, Moses, the leaders were men. It's not that women couldn't do anything. Okay? Look at Titus 1. Paul gives his instructions to Titus. And Titus 1. Verse 5. Verse 6. Well, look at verse 5. Look at the word order in here. For the reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and to appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a what? Man is blameless. Husband one wife, having faithful children, not a curse of this accused dissipation or insubordination. A bishop must be blameless, steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent or greedy, for money, but hospitable, a love of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-control, holding fast to the faithful word. They may be able to exhort and convict those who contradict. So, you see in those two instances right there, the call of the leaders of God's church are to be qualified men. So we see here Moses setting apart qualified men also and it's nothing um, wrong with that God does that because that is his order so you know churches that have so called female pastors they're not true pastors because that's an oxymoron female pastor of course not <laughs> it is especially here in Aniston uh, but it's show me in the bible it's not in there. I told y'all, you know, I was providentially saved under a female pastor. I didn't know the Bible then. I was a novice. Uh, you know, but once I learned, you know, once I knew better, I did better. You know, we, we, we we're part of a denomination like that. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. You got to be an apostle. You, you can't be just a lowly pastor. You got to gotta be an apostle now. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Or just ask her the question, uh, where do you see female pastors in the Bible? That's a good question to ask. You won't see any. Uh, so, <laughs> but yeah, that's, uh, that's a very good point. But people, they, they do that. And some of them do it 
unknowingly because they don't know scripture, but some of them do it because they want just power. You know, I think some do it ignorantly because that's all they know, but there's some that do it and know what they're doing. Uh, so, amen. So, we'll uh, land here in the last three verses, right quick 16 through 18. So, he says, well, actually, verse 15, I want to get to that. So, I took heads of your tribes, wise and knowledgeable men, and made them heads over you, leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of fifties, leaders of ten, and officers for your tribe. Believe it or not, this is kind of how our government structure is set up and how this is a good way a, a structured organization whether a city or anything like that uh, a government should be set up where you have leaders of thousands and then you have leaders of hundreds under those thousands and then you have leaders of tens under those hundreds and then you have I'm sorry, you have leaders of 50s under the 100s, and then you have leaders of 10 under the 50s, and then you have officers. That's a nice uh, structure, a nice governmental uh, structure. And what are they commanded to do? Hear the cases between brethren and judge righteously. So they're charged, the, the, the key factors in administrating justice is one judge righteously judge with the righteous judgment you notice the word judge is in there right we ought to judge you know people like to quote Matthew 7 1 do not judge but they don't read the rest of that context it's not that you don't judge you judge righteous judgment you judge considering yourself you don't judge from a self-righteous position as if you have not sinned we are called to judge we judge about we judge about what restaurant to go to. We judge about what vehicle we want to purchase or where we want to live. We make judgments about that. So they're to judge righteously. Number one, these are all standards that God. This is what justice looks like: true justice, biblical justice. Judge righteously. Judge without partiality. Show no partiality, no favoritism in judgment. Lord of our world did that. You judge without partiality. Okay, so when we judge people, we're not partial. We don't show favoritism. Do you know that racism is, is in essence partiality? It's the sin of partiality. And no, not only white people are racist. <laughs> racism lies in the heart of every single person regardless of their melanin count the sin, the sin of partiality lies in every human heart not just people with less melanin in their skin we have to always remember that but racism is in essence partiality or, or being partial to the poor the bible says don't favor the rich or be partial to the poor in verse, the second part of verse 17, we are to judge without pressure or intimidation. He says, you shall hear the small as well as the great. Don't be afraid in any man's presence. In other words, 
don't have fear of man when you come to judging matters. Some people are, because they're scared of the reaction. You find this a lot on social media. People say something that's true, and Twitter comes down on them, and then they come back uh, apologizing for something that they said was true. But you, you judge without pressure or intimidation. If it's right, it's right. When you're making a judgment, you do it without pressure. You do it without intimidation. You don't worry about man. You don't worry about whether a person is small or great. In other words, their stature, whether they're popular or not. You should not be afraid in any man's presence. We're not to be afraid of people. We're not, not, not to have fear of man. The Bible tells us the fear of man is a snare. Oh, I'm not going to. I'm not going to come down hard on them because I'm I'm scared they might do this or that or the other. And then you judge within the scope of your limitations. Judgment ultimately belongs to who? God. So we do judge, but ultimate judgment belongs to who? God, ultimately. Okay? And so he tells the judges, I command you at that time the things which you should do. So this is how justice, this is how true justice looks, even in our world. This is how true justice looks. Just true justice should be administered by qualified people. God sets that standard. It should be done by qualified people. We have a Supreme Court justice who can't even tell you what a woman is. But she's a woman. And yet she's sitting on the highest court in the land. That's not a good qualification right there. Just because she has, just because she's black. That's not a qualification. That's an unbiblical qualification. A person that can't even tell you what a woman is sitting on our highest court. You think that's just? It's not. That's unjust. So these are the parameters that God lays out. Judge righteously without partiality, without pressure, intimidation, fear of man, and within the scope of our limitations. There's only so much we can do. God is the ultimate judge. So we will land right there. Uh, as we go through, we'll, we'll look at how this points to the gospel, but we're just kind of going through right now. I hope this is enjoyable to us. Let's pray right quick as we close out. Father, thank you for taking us through your word thank you for taking us through this chapter so far lord may your word be a blessing to us may you plant your truth in our heart that we heard tonight lord i pray that you bless the saints encourage the saints and those who are not believers who hear this and see this that they may repent and turn to you and be saved because one day they're going to stand before you and be judged and they're going to be judged righteously by you. They're going to be judged impartially by you. They're going to be judged without any outside influence or pressure. And they're going to be judged with no limitations. So, Lord, bring salvation to those who hear. In Christ's name, amen.